Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. The very first Sprogcast live event was recorded on the 14th of July 2016 at Efraspace in South London. Your hosts, as always, are Mark Harris and Karen Hall, and as well as a live audience, we had four special guests, Rebecca Schiller, Amy Brown, Natalie Meddings and Katie Edwards. We'll be back to our usual format next month with an episode about gentle caesarean. Enjoy the show. We're really excited about the first Sprogcast Live. This is the first time we've done it. Uh, I'm Mark Harris. This is Karen Hall. We'll be sort of like hosting the evening. But right at the outset, I want to say a big thank you to Pinter and Martin that have um, enabled us to use this fantastic space. So... Um, it's over to the uh, speakers to introduce themselves. I'm uh, Rebecca Schiller and I do a number of things in the world of birth. I am a doula, though I feel a little bit cheeky saying that because I don't get to do very much of it at the moment. But that's where my birth passion has come from. And I run a charity called Birthrights that... Um, is interested in improving women's experiences of pregnancy and birth by promoting uh, respect for human rights. And because of all that, I write stuff. Uh, sometimes uh, people pay me for it, quite often they don't. Um, <laughs> excitingly, um, Pinter and Martin are letting me write a whole uh, book about it, which is coming out in September, um, which you must buy if you're here. It's absolutely <laughs> essential. Um, and yeah, I think that's every, I'm a mother as well, um, which is the best job, of course, in the world. Uh, I'm Amy Brown. I'm an academic at Swansea University. Uh, I'm a psychologist by background, and my research plans were to do something completely different. Um, but I signed up to do a PhD and got pregnant within the first few days of it, um, and got emerged into the world of babies and breastfeeding and realised what a world it was. So I became a breastfeeding researcher, really, looking at all the societal barriers and psychological barriers and cultural social barriers that are placed in the way of women when they try to breastfeed. So my research tries to break those down one at a time, very, very, very slowly. Um, I'm also publishing with Pinter and Martin, and I have a book coming out shortly after. Um, so you've got to buy that as well, please. <laughs> um, I'm Natalie, and I was many years ago a journalist, and you turned into birth work, for want of a better word, um, just by having a baby, which is usually the place I think a lot of people start, and knowing that... I had an amazing experience and wondering why, given I knew that I didn't do anything special and I didn't have a very high pain threshold and I didn't only really understand why, I went out back into the world to discover that it was, you know, that was in a huge minority. And I think I sort of combined the journalism with, um, with and the curiosity, really, to understand what, why it was so misunderstood and why things went badly for so many. So I trained as an active birth teacher with Janet Velasquez, which I, maybe some of you know. Um, and while I was on Janet Velasquez's course, which I'm, I wasn't a very good yoga teacher, I'm really, I still am, don't tell anyone. <laughs> sorry, sorry. But yoga is not my thing. I went on the course because I love birth and I thought, oh, this is going to be my way. And then suddenly I realised there was so much yoga and I thought, I just want to talk about birth. And, um, and then halfway through, Michelle O'Don came on to give a lecture and that was it, the world changed. And I just went, never going back to journalism, this is the way forward. And I became a doula and that became the main work. And I still am an absolutely passionate active birth yoga teacher, um, doula, and I also run Tell Me A Good Birth Story, which is a free um, national support service for women, like a funny shaped dating agency, I always call it, <laughs> uh, where I match nervous women, anxious women, just any women really who are pregnant, usually first time, and I match them with women who've had positive experiences of birth, um, sort of li literally one-to-one. -one. People always think it's kind of a, gl a glossy setup, but actually it's just me in my kitchen in my nightdress, just going like that with a computer. Um, so it's quite a simple, but a lot of people now follow the Facebook page, which is a thousand thousands, and it's quite international now, so anyway, yeah, thank you. We have a special guest, Katie, who is going to do us a poem. Hi, I'm Katie Edwards and I'm a doula. And I became passionate about birth um, with, with the birth of my first child, really, because she 
I was absolutely petrified. And when I learned that birth, that some people were going up about birth in a calm way, I was just completely amazed. Um, I wasn't fully informed the first time. I think it's not fair for people to kind of be going into the birth process without that knowledge. Um, So my first poem is called Addiction to Convention, and it's about the change that I would like to see in maternity services. Okay? We start out in healthcare with compassion and kindness, though addiction to convention can fashion a blindness. We know how birth works and what makes it progress. The mind-body connection is the key to address. Safety is an important goal. It's a whole team approach. We each have a role to avoid excessive disturbance and harm. We need to gather our sense and rearm. For things to change, women must take control. Years of oppression have taken their toll on our understanding of what birth is and how it progresses. We need to avoid those unnecessary stresses. Always looking out for signs of complication, but with risk-averse guidelines in this age of litigation. Paternalistic energies have been brought into the mix, creating arbitrary measurements to try to fix a process that's evolved since man began. It's been that long. Are we made that wrong? Developing trust is an absolute must, respecting her space so she can adjust to the rhythms. An innate power active inside, her birthing body, the wave she can ride, fully focused on the task at hand, their powerful surges, but she's in command. And I'm saying these words because I want things to change. So let's work together and make plans to arrange for it's time to reflect, to collect what we know, to connect up the dots and redirect so women have a voice and they're told what is true about how we can birth, about what they can do, to support themselves and make their own choices, protecting their dignity, respecting their voices. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. So more from you later. That would be all right. Um, we're going to come to our first story, and Rebecca's going to talk to us. I don't want to go after Katie because she was too good. <laughs> Nothing I say is going to rhyme either. Which <laughs> Mark and Karen said to to tell you a story, um, which is quite a wide brief, and I thought about lots of things I could do, and in the end. I couldn't think of anything better than reading you a birth story that I really love, written by, not by me, written by um, a woman called Claire. Um, And this birth story is about three years old. And it is one of my favourites because it's a woman who had had a difficult first birth and goes on to have another baby and receives quite a lot of judgment and, and pressure for the choices that she wants to make. Um, but gets good support and carries on with her plans. And I think it's the way that this birth makes her feel is why I'm so passionate about this subject. It's called Arlo Finally Puts in an Appearance by Claire. Um, How do we feel about swearing? Uh, I don't have any issue. Karen has more of an issue, but there you go. I'm very, very... (laughs) No, we'll bleep it, it's fine. No, okay, go, you'll go bleep ahead. it. It's quite integral. <laughs> it's only because story. of the iTunes license. <laughs> go ahead. Um, it's not throughout, but there is some swearing, so if you are easily offended, please leave the room now. <laughs> For goodness sake, don't leave the room. <laughs> then there was one person left. Let me ruin the end of the story by telling you the punchline at the beginning, just in case you can't be bothered to get to the end. I gave birth to our gorgeous son, Arlo, an 11-pound, two-ounce baby, at home, with no drugs save a tiny whiff of gas and air, and no tearing or stitches. Boom. (laughs) And also, the baby was what they like to call compound presentation, which means that in addition to having to push out his massive head... No, truly, the size of his head was in the 98th percentile. He also had his hand against his head, which makes the whole thing, well, bigger. (laughs) Okay, bragging over, I promise. But the thing is, giving birth to Arlo made me feel so amazing. It was just like, if I could do this extreme birthing thing myself, then I could probably do any fucking thing I ever wanted to do in the universe, ever. (laughs) 
And you know, a little bragging is justified. I'm proud of myself because this was my second labour and my first was the opposite in every way, aside from the truly awesome outcome both times. If you'd asked me any time up to about 38 weeks through this pregnancy, I would have told you that I was going to go into hospital at the first sign of contractions with a stack of magazines, ask for an epidural and wait calmly to be told when to push. This was until a friend gently recommended I meet a doula. She was wonderful and life-changing, like a cross between your best friend and your therapist, only she's seen as many vaginas as a gynecologist. She is an awesome tea maker too. Though I'd like to say that isn't her main skill. I'm pretty sure her main skills are listening and adapting to whatever you need her to be. We met her, and the first thing she did was listen as Dylan and I talked through the experience we had when we gave birth to Nate, the good an amazing midwife called Comfort who rescued me in my hour of need. The bad, being shouted at by a less good midwife at another critical stage of my labour. And the ugly, you don't need to know. She listened and made me feel just well better about the whole thing. She made us realise that we'd been victims of bad luck and unfortunate circumstance like shift changes and hospital protocols and that my labour didn't need to be like that again. After a few discussions with her, I realized that what I wanted was to feel relaxed and in control. And I realized that my best chance of that happening would be at home. I'm private and self-conscious, so being around as few people as possible and as hidden away, I'd have, as much greater, I'd have a much greater shot at staying in control of my contractions. I knew that some people might not approve of my idea of home birth, but I didn't think my midwife would be one of them. Because I was presenting with a larger-than-average baby, they felt I was high-risk. Luckily, I had my doula's support and she helped me by pointing me in the direction of some reading and a local supervisor of midwives. Soon, I felt confident in a way I never had when I was pregnant with Nate, though I wasn't expecting to go two weeks overdue. And to say I was pissed off is a massive understatement, especially as I'd been having Braxton Hicks from about 37 weeks and my first baby was on time. But my doula talked me down and reminded me that the baby just wasn't ready yet and would arrive any day now. Happily, I went into labour the day before my induction was booked in, one day shy of 42 weeks pregnant. I went to sleep the night before saying, I don't think these are Braxton Hicks, you know. For the next couple of hours, I just lay on my side with my hot water bottle on my lower back, doing my deep breathing. Dylan lit a scented candle. He ran me a bath. My contractions were coming every four minutes at that stage, and getting into the bath was a massive relief. My doula came, and we also let the team of midwives know. At 7 a.m., I realized things were slowing down and it was getting light outside. The doula came, the midwives came, and then everybody went away again because that everything had stopped. So she went back to bed and then decided to get back in the bath. But this time, the bath had the opposite effect. Everything seemed to quicken and intensify in that hour or so that I was there. The pain, which I'd found difficult but manageable, was rapidly getting to be too much, and I wanted my doula and my midwife there now to help me. Dylan asked if I should tell them to come in half an hour. I explained, or maybe I shouted, that I would need them now. Looking back, I didn't realise that I was going through transition at this point. At the time, I had no idea. Based on my previous experience, I didn't think there was any way I would have been able to reach this stage of my labour just pottering about at home with some scented candles and a hot water bottle. I started to feel sick and dizzy. I told Dylan I'd changed my mind and to get me to hospital, but then I shut down and stopped being able to speak properly. Dylan rushed my mum and my little boy out of the living room and upstairs, and I knelt on the bathroom floor, breathing through the contractions until the midwife arrived. We hadn't put the birthing pool out. It was too late. I was about to push. It felt like there was no break between the contractions. I couldn't bear anyone speaking, touching me or moving me while I was having a contraction. But the midwife was amazing. She just went with what I wanted. She didn't try to examine me. She trusted me. I just had her and my husband either side of me as I knelt against our armchair. I was horrendous to everyone, telling them to shut up if they move or spoke. I couldn't bear any sensory inputs. But these brilliant, wonderful people around me did everything I asked without complaint or question. Pushing took me a long time. As his head was coming down, I could feel him come out a little and then go back. The midwife gently told me the baby was showing signs of distress. She wasn't too concerned because she expected him to be born shortly, but I took this really badly. 
I started to cry, fearing that the baby's head was getting stuck as it had last time and that I might have to have an episiotomy or they might have to take me to hospital in an ambulance. I couldn't contemplate moving a muscle. I sobbed. My doula had been respectfully waiting in the hall, but she heard my distress and she came right in because she knew exactly what I was thinking. She came up to me and laid a hand on me and told me how brilliantly I was doing. She told me that what was happening now was normal and the baby was coming out perfectly and it wasn't the same as what had happened before. I hadn't been able to speak or voice my fears, but she read my mind. At the next contraction, our delicious, chubby boy was born. And unlike my first labour, baby Arlo and I were soon reclining on the sofa breastfeeding and I had a cup of hot sweet tea in my hand. The midwives cleared up the living room leaving my family in the warm glow, filled with joy, on that December morning. After I had my first baby, I felt traumatised and disappointed. This time I was exhausted and sore, yes, relieved it was over, of course, but exhilarated and on top of the world. So I'd love for other women out there who are frightened because it is their first experience, or who have had a bad experience in the past, or who just don't think they are strong and capable enough, or who think their baby is too big, or not in the perfect position, to know that if I can do it, anyone can. Can I ask a quick question? Um, not, not about the story, it's fantastic. Could you tell us just a little bit about what are some of your priorities at Birthrights at the moment, and how people can get in contact with you, and where you're to be found? We are to be found, Birthrights is to be found mainly via our website, which is birthrights.org.uk. And we do a few different things. The first is to provide free expert legal advice um, to women and families. Um, so people who are having um, issues getting the kind of care they want, um, who are being put under undue pressure, who've had services withdrawn. Um, sometimes people come to us after um, they've had a baby because they want help knowing how to complain or because they're not sure if something that happened to them was okay. Um, so we do that uh, and we also advise midwives and obstetricians about tricky situations like when women want to give birth outside of guidelines. And because of that we've developed a training and resources program that's really important to us. So we're offering um, resources and training to midwives and doctors and other birth workers um, we've got a um, workshop here in November which is actually sold out already one in Coventry which is sold out and there's one in Nottingham which still has some spaces um, in November and all those details are via our website we've got some great training videos coming out in the autumn um, and we're doing a collaboration with the Royal College of Midwives and um, producing a sort of digital training module for midwives and then the third bit of that is to research so we get all this information from our advice line and from talking to midwives and doctors and then questions come up and we think it's our job to find out more so at the moment we're collaborating with Bournemouth University researching um, women with physical and sensory disabilities um, experiences of childbirth um, and we've got a real interest in um, groups who are at risk of having their um, rights violated during birth, um, particularly issues like mental capacity. Um, women with mental health issues are very vulnerable um, in pregnancy and birth in the postnatal period. Um, so yeah, that's th those are our kind of three strands and the best way to get hold of us is via info at birthrights.org.uk. And you're, you're swimming in money? Oh, it's coming out of my ears. We hardly have any money. We, we were entirely voluntary for the first three years, and then the organisation got too big to manage in that way, because right. essentially I couldn't do any other work, and uh, I needed to earn a, a small living so um we've now um changed our structure to become um an organization with staff and we had a, a very small grant for a year um which runs out next april that is funding us to do this work so you can support us in a number of ways one um, is becoming a monthly supporter and we're also we've got a great campaign um around when my book comes out in the autumn you can host a book club get friends round, discuss the issues, get them enthusiastic about thinking about women's rights in birth um, and 
do a whip round. Every glass of wine costs at least £45 at my yeah, book club. That's London for you. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Can I bring us back to the story and ask you why it's your favourite? Um, I love Claire. I mean, I edited myself out a little bit, but I was Claire's doula, but I felt a bit of an idiot putting that, leaving the bits where it said Rebecca in. But Claire is amazing, and she's one of the least likely people that you would think to be having a home birth just from you know everyone assumes you know the kind of people who have home births you know claire is not the kind of person that has a home birth um and when i first met her at 38 weeks pregnant she'd never it never even crossed her mind um and she just sort of absolutely rocked this thing she had this gigantic baby I mean he was enormous when he came out I've never seen such a huge baby and she you know she'd had a really difficult time the first time and and she she really had to fight for what she wanted you know she got a lot of stick from the local midwives um, who understandably I don't think felt very well supported and and she got really good support from the supervisor and I think I guess everything about it is what I love about being a doula. It's just sort of not just being there as a, you know, a sort of soundboard and watching somebody realise what they need and then do it. Um, and it, and it's, it, it's lovely. And she's been really supportive then to lots of other women in her local area um, and been very supportive of me and birthright. So, and she's now a really good friend. So it's just... It's full of love. <laughs> it's just all of it. <laughs> so I guess um, I'm thinking of, of your um, phrase that it's not all that matters. A healthy baby is not all that matters. And if she was to compare her two birth stories, she could really support that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, she recovered from her first birth. She went on to go back to work. But her birth wasn't something that that she had in any way enjoyed it was something that was done to her she had no support she was left alone for a lot of the time um she felt incredibly vulnerable and she was completely terrified of this birth so much so that she didn't think about it at all until 38 weeks and she only thought about it then because a friend said to you like the baby's going to come out like you have to think about it now um so it's a real it's a real testament to the the transformative power of of birth and mm. and that it can be transformative in different ways and mm. for some women that transformation can be a really negative one you know none of us can say what is going to be a positive birth for a woman it, you know for some women it would have been a very different kind of birth that would have been positive for them but this was her decision and she did it and nothing was done to her and it was all done for her and with her and it made a huge impact on her life and her confidence and that's just wonderful to see. Does anyone else want to say anything? Yeah. That's what I love about those, um, that sort of situation. Um, to the same extent that which the first birth took her down, mm -hmm. I think people imagine that a positive experience can just restore you but I find always, 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 it doesn't just restore you back to normality, it sends you to a transcendent it, it kind of it overshoots and heals so much that it it, it doubles up do you know what i mean it literally takes you up and above so that's what's so loving that you really hear that in that story don't you any questions from out there what's the worst thing about being a doula that's a really good question <laughs> yeah yeah right <laughs> oh it is because i think that's that's why I don't get to do much doulaing anymore because the worst thing for me about being a doula was the number of times that I got I just had to witness stuff that wasn't okay uh, and feel complicit actually sometimes so I had to become an activist in some way because I couldn't you know I, I don't think that's unimportant I think that the individual support is hugely important but for me, it was beginning to be difficult to contain myself. <laughs> and I had, to, I had to start doing something um, that felt like it was more of a sort of systemic and structural level. And I really miss the one-to-one -one work and I want to do it. And I think it's incredibly valuable. And it's also selfishly incredibly valuable to me because I get to see what it's like. It, you know, I get to be reminded why it's important. 
but that for me was the hardest thing and and the number of times i'd have to go off and like scream into a, a pillow and debrief with all of my doula sisters and then debrief with them some more and you know um and you know have my, my husband cannot have another conversation with me about someone's birth because you know it's like well, I'm really if you tell me about someone's show one more time I don't I don't want to discuss it <laughs> when you, when the phone rings at 4 a.m and you want to like is it brown is it <laughs> go out of the room I'm not interested in that <laughs> that's for me where it's been it's been difficult I mean there's loads of other things like the, the length of the time you can be at a birth and being on call and all those things, but that's all totally worth it. But yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We're going to move on to Amy. Hello, yeah. <laughs> Wake up. <laughs> okay, um, I want to talk about breasts obviously um <laughs> well more breastfeeding really than just breasts <laughs> um i usually manage to get the conversation back to this um i want to talk about somebody called lucy let's let's call her lucy lucy's story lucy is part my experience part my friend's experience part what women tell me in research and part, in a way, most women's experience in some way. I think most people can probably identify with Lucy's experience. Now, Lucy now is a, a new mother. She's got a brand new baby. Perhaps, let's say he's about 10 days old. She's got over the, the initial part of having a baby. And she decides one day to take her little boy out in his pram to the shops. And when she gets there, she meets the general public. <laughs> now, <laughs> the general public can't but help stop Lucy and talk to her. She's got a gorgeous brand new baby and they all stop her as she's trying to walk around the shops and they ask three things because the general public always ask three things about babies. <laughs> the first one, is it a boy or a girl? And Lucy decides this time to say yes. Yes, it is a boy or a girl, and the general public look at her and go, okay. Um, general public is not put off at this, though, and decide to say, well, you know, how much did it weigh at birth? Because the general public needs to know this, and she makes it up and says, oh, 20 pounds. Um, and completely still not put off comes three little words. Is he good? Uh-huh. <laughs> you knew I was going to say that. Is he good? Now, Lucy's a brand new mum, and she's a bit shocked by this because she thinks, he's my darling little boy. Of course he's good. Now, another version of Lucy, perhaps me, usually answered something on lines of, well, you know, doing well this week. Don't ask me about last week, though. So much trouble with the police. Um, but, <laughs> but what do we actually mean by good? And why do we stop strangers? I don't mean we, I mean they. Why does the general public decide to stop a brand new mother in the street and ask, is he good? I mean, what does that even mean? Now, society would tell you that First of all, a good baby is what all mothers want. A good baby makes you a good mother. And what a good baby is, is a baby that makes you think that you haven't even had a baby. Because <laughs> even though you've just spent quite a long time and a bit of effort creating a whole brand new person, society tells you that that person shouldn't disturb you. You should go straight back to your new life shortly after you get your genes straight back on at three days after having the baby, like all the celebrities. Um, and they think that this baby shouldn't feed very much. They should feed according to a set schedule every four hours, which you can plan. Um, just like adults only ever drink or eat at exact four-hour schedules. <laughs> Missing my wine. <laughs> and that baby should be sleeping through the night because, you know, all adults definitely sleep through the night. You know, I, I go to bed, bang on 10 o'clock and sleep right through. I never wake up. I never need a drink. Um, I never have a nightmare. I never perhaps need comfort in some way. But we expect this of young babies. And the general public tell new mothers that this is a good thing. And if you say, oh, no, 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 he's actually waking up, they'll turn to you and say, well, what a naughty baby, and look at you as if to say, 
this is all your fault, you know, that you don't have a baby that's like a little small robot. So Lucy, at this point, brand new mother, a bit tearful as it is, a bit overwhelmed by everything, as you would expect her to be, thinks, well, what am I going to do? I obviously don't know how to look after babies. And she thinks, I know what I'll do is I'll go and get some expert advice. So being as if she's at the shops anyway, she pops into an unknown bookshop, certainly not any books that are sold here, um, an unknown bookshop, and she looks for books on how to care for your baby and books that tell you to get her life back. I thought I'd read you, somewhere in here, I have a notebook, with some experts of, excerpts of what she comes across. So she walks into this bookshop and she looks at the baby care section and she thinks, oh, Dr. Spock, my mother used to use Dr. Spock and I'm all right, so, you know. And so she flicks through and Dr. Spock says to her from the pages of this book, if babies reach the age of one month and weigh nine pounds and still wake for a 2 a.m. feed, I think it's sensible for the parents to try and give it up. And baby. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit drastic. Bad, perhaps a prison. <laughs> and quite specifically here, a five or six pounder needs to be fed every three hours. Most eight and nine pounders are happy to average four hours between feeds, and somewhere between the fourth and fifth month, a majority of babies show preference for a five-hour interval. Though she thinks, well, my baby really doesn't do that. He he feeds all the time, and my, my lovely midwife and lovely breastfeeding support group um, tell me that this is normal. Why is this book telling me different? So she picks up another one and she finds this lovely looking woman called Tizzy Hall who says that um, she's going to save their sleep. And um, Tizzy says to her, um, the good thing about my routines is that when your baby starts to cry, you can look at the routine and see what is due to happen next. So as he cries at a specific time, you know that he's not hungry at all. Um, and another quote, um, be conscious that some babies think your sole purpose in life is to help him fall asleep. True, true. Um, during night feeds, try not to talk to your baby. Um, by week two, it is important to be developing some sort of sleeping and feeding routine. However, my favourite quote from Tizzy, which um, our mother Lucy gets quite disturbed at. Tizzy says, one aspect I considered is whether the quality of the mother's milk changes when she puts her baby on a routine. Because cow's milk is close to human milk, which is why we drink it and feed it to our children, I decided to discuss it with various dairy farmers. <laughs> dairy farmers stick to strict routines in relation to their milking. Most will milk their cows at 5am and 3pm every day. When I inquired why, why, it was explained to me that milking the cows at a set time every day meant their metabolism knew exactly when and how much milk to produce. The farmer said that if they milked their cows earlier or later than scheduled, the milk would not be the highest quality or quantity. It's not such a leap to come to the conclusion that this might be the same for a breastfeeding mother's milk supply. Hmm. So Tizzy's a bit confused about why we're talking cows and actually, no, it's Tizzy, it's Lucy, isn't it? I'm getting confused between my friends. Um, <laughs> and thinks, no, no, enough of her. We'll, we'll, we'll go for this final one here of this nice-looking woman called Gina Ford. Um, and Gina tells her, um, if you want your baby to sleep through the night from an early age and ensure a long-term healthy sleep pattern, the golden rules are to establish the right associations and to structure your baby's feed from the day you arrive home from hospital. I don't know what you do with a home birth. Um, I, be <laughs> I believe by the end of the second week, a baby who weighed seven pounds or more at birth should really only need one feed in the night. And I suggest avoiding eye contact at 10.30pm and during night feeds to help show your baby it is not playtime. And by three to four months, if your baby is breastfed and still wakes up at night, talk to your health visitor about replacing the late breastfeeds with formula. And finally, the majority of babies I helped care for usually sleep through all night to 7am, somewhere between 8 and 12 weeks. Thankfully, at this point, Lucy just happens to meet a lovely breastfeeding counsellor who just happens to be going through buying all the books or turning them round so nobody can actually read them. 
And they talk to her and they explain how breast milk is produced and the normality of cuddling a baby and how, as adults, we wouldn't treat our partners or even our friends like this. If your partner woke in the night with a nightmare, you wouldn't turn to him and say, shh, can't look at you. You should be sleeping through the night by now. <laughs> There's a spare room. We've been through this before. <laughs> Nor would they ignore the British custom of making cups of tea continually for people because it's not a set time on the clock. But seriously, Lucy's story, it's why a lot of women give up breastfeeding because that message from society keeps coming at them. And until we teach society to at least stay away from new mothers if they can't say anything possible, I think we're still going to have a pretty big problem with breastfeeding. Brilliant. Thanks, Amy. Can I just say I agree with Tizzy Hall? My sole purpose in life was always to help my baby fall asleep. Ah, oh, there we go. For months. <laughs> what, what about the months. cows? Cows? Babies? Cows? Babies? I don't know Baby so cow? much about cows, no. so I'd refrain from comment. <laughs> Probably why. <laughs> I've got a quick question. You're a breastfeeding uh, researcher, and I was shocked that in the UK, at 12 months, we have the worst breastfeeding rates in the world. What do you think are the, the main causes for that? In a nutshell, you've got two minutes. Well, to do this, you, you really need to buy a certain book that is coming out ah. in October. <laughs> but on, on a serious note, it's society. We're not, we're not set up to accept breastfeeding. We don't understand what breastfeeding is like. So even if deep down that general public say, of course I support breastfeeding, they often don't. They don't understand how it works. They think normal breastfeeding patterns, normal sleep, normal weight gain is a problem, and they think that formula is a solution because they've been so taken in by the not-so-subtle formula um, adverts. A lot of people say that they can't breastfeed. True physiological not being able to breastfeed, not, oh, far less than 2%. Probably 2% is an overestimate. There's nothing particularly different about British breasts compared to... <laughs> Swedish breasts, we say, <laughs> or, you know, it, it's a big societal problem, and it comes at women at all angles, and it, it's not just targeted at breastfeeding, it's targeted at mothering in general. Mm. We don't care for our new mothers, we don't give them the time, we don't give them the support. Natalie's got something <laughs> Sorry, to say. I just wanted to add Go to on. that, <laughs> that um, I've noticed, I've spotted this sort of, um, what perpetuates that, I think, is a sort of contagion, if you like. Women, I call it the posit a positive cycle of discouragement, where you get the six-week enthusiasm, sort of upsurge of, uh, of enthusiasm to wanting to breastfeed, where everybody's up for it, and then you see this massive dip, about five, six weeks, and I've been watching it, and I've noticed that between each other, you know, on NCT groups and WhatsApp groups and all this, there's this little trickle of, well, I'm going through the night now, and I tell you what, I just do one bottle like that. And then it, it sort of sets it, and I know it because my mums go, well, they're doing it, and isn't that what you're supposed to do? And it, it's, a, it's, something, it's literally that simple. Yeah. And the reason I'm, I was um, linking it is because it reminds me of birth. It's the same in the sense that yeah. the more women tell each other that birth is frightening, yeah. And the more they tell each other that, that breastfeeding is a bind and, and difficult and it's only going to tie you down and you won't be able to do this and you can't get through the night, it's infectious and then they just yeah. all spread it one to the next. And, yeah. and I, I think so many women have been let down, just like they have with birth, so many women have been let down by breastfeeding that they're desperate not to feel any responsibility for it in a you know they, they don't they're so upset by it that they, they they don't want to ever think that anything could have been different and until we really support those women to breastfeed the other thing added to that is we seem to have a complete secrecy around what breastfeeding is really going to be like as well we spend a lot of time antenatally telling women oh you really want to breastfeed and maybe this is how to latch a baby on but no one really points out that babies feed a lot and that's normal and don't compare them to a formula fed baby because it's completely different and I think if we just took 20 minutes to tell them that then we'd have a far less of a problem but we don't speaking as someone whose job is to spend two and a half hours telling people that <laughs> that those things um, I am so familiar with people coming into the session expecting it not to work so I said, what do you want to get out of this session? And they'll say, well, I'd like to try to breastfeed. I hope to be able to breastfeed. And I think, well, 
I've got to turn that round. I've got two and a half hours. I've got to tell them how it works. I've got to give them some realistic expectations. I've got to promise them support afterwards. And they're going to forget everything I say or just not believe it because I'm a breastfeeding counsellor. So obviously I'm going to just lie. <laughs> I, I think again it is such a huge change that we need to make and we need to get as the UNICEF call to action talks about at the moment we need to change this on a societal level because I don't want to say that breastfeeding is difficult but like anything it's hard work it's hard work keeping somebody alive and being their sole source of nutrition but so worth it society works against mothers at every stage of that so if mm-hmm. If she's exhausted, they don't say to her, oh, let me take the baby out in a sling between feeds for you. Let me do the housework for you. They say, let's give him a bottle of formula. And they always blame breastfeeding. Not the, it's not the environment that they're in. In other countries, they look after their women for six weeks after birth. All they have to do is care for their baby. And why don't we have that? Instead, we try and get mums to snap right back and be super mum. Wouldn't that be lovely? It would, I think. <laughs> Katie, have you got a poem about this? About the um, kind of carrying um, 40 days, being looked after kind of thing. No? You well, should do. You've got, you've got 10 minutes. Anyway, while, while Katie's writing a poem, anyone else got a, a question? We've got time for at least one. What about... I see in placement a lot this anxiety of failure... And I find it very hard to deal with because they're terrified before they even start breastfeeding. They're told, this is the best. You have to breastfeed your baby. Antenatally, that's the message. And then they have their baby and they're terrified from the very start that they're going to fail. And I find it very difficult to know psychologically, like, how do you get over that barrier? Because I think in some ways that is damaging. Like, it damages their oxytocin levels. So, yes breastfeeding is more difficult and I, I mean yeah. I think at, at the moment we've got ourselves stuck in such a way where we've got so many let down women who are angry and upset and are shouting about how difficult it is that of course women are going to worry about it if, if they're in a culture where let's say 98-99% of women breastfed at birth and breastfed for a long time then they wouldn't be hearing those messages and those scare stories it's, it's societal again that until we create an environment where breastfeeding well breastfeeding problems just aren't nobody talks about them because they're so very very rare yeah. we, we used to live inside family networks didn't we where these stories were passed on in familial relationships it's so true. I love what you just said. Um, no, I was just—I really like what you, how you were talking about the general public as if it was a person, because I, I think that's so true. I've done quite a lot of reading around it, and it's almost like um, even when you don't get these stares or you don't get comments, there's still like a voice in the back of your head going, "Oh, this is what society's thinking of me right now." There's, and it's—it's it's like this big oppressive thing when that no one's even said that. No one's even turned to look at you. And I think that um, a combination of education, self-esteem, confidence, support provides you with this little bubble around you in order for you to be able to kind of defeat that and still breastfeed with confidence and not care. But yeah. (laughs) I I kind of think of the general public and breastfeeding as if you've watched Harry Potter the Dementors um, kind of coming around and sucking all the good experiences out of new mothers when they leave the house but it, it's huge and it's, it's so ingrained and it, it's that fear again that it's all then whipped up by the media as well. Every time I see a mother thrown out of a coffee shop story I think those poor mothers, those pregnant women those new mothers reading it and now fearing that it's going to happen to them we just need to pause because I think Rebecca has to go so thank you we really appreciate having you here thank you go for it because of what you were saying I think the thing that um, frustrates me is like I had so I found hypnobirthing really early on in my pregnancy and I had the most amazing home birth with, with our son and, um, and despite early issues with breastfeeding, really persevered and he had tongue tie issues and stuff like that that went undiagnosed for um, a few weeks and was very stressful. But, um, and I, uh, and I, he just turned two in April and I still breastfeed him now and notice that I say still breastfeed him now. Um, yeah. 
but the thing that I find sad and the thing that I certainly struggled with is I had this most amazing birth and I still breastfeed him now and I'm very, very proud of myself and what I've achieved, yet I don't feel like women can go out there and say that. You know, when, you know, when they succeed at breastfeeding or they have the most amazing birth story, they don't feel like they can say to their friend that ended up having an emergency C-section, like, I had the most amazing birth, you know? And I find that's very, very sad that that's the world that we live in now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely. why I set up Tell Me a Good Birth Story yeah. specifically. Maybe yeah. we need a branch of it, Tell Me a Good Breastfeeding Story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, it's really... Like, silent. Um, I see that as well. I'm a hypnobirthing teacher, and uh, clients of mine who have had really good births tell me they feel guilty, guilty to express to their NCT mothers that they've had a good birth. Yeah, it's terrible, and I think it's one of the reasons why people believe birth is terrifying, because they don't have a voice of good births, because the women who've had good births think it's wrong. It's terrible, yeah. How's the poem coming along, Katie? Um, I've finished. Do you want to do it? Joking. <laughs> You're joking. When, I'm not saying it's great, right? You give me right. like five minutes, okay? When we are a new mother, there's so much to do. The guests we must care for, the housework too. We care for our babies, but it's all so new. We don't know what we're doing. Are they weeing or pooing? Are they drinking enough? Is our milk sufficient? Am I enough? Am I deficient? When will we learn to look after our mothers, to give them the care that they deserve? It's such a massive learning curve. Let's have six weeks where we're looked after. And at that point, we'll rejoice with laughter. Wow. Wow. What a star. Thank you, Katie. I'm going to pass the microphone. Uh, Can you do one about robots? <laughs> <laughs> I've been working in, um, as I said earlier, for about, about 14 years. I attend births and I sometimes get into these phases where I feel like I've, I've lost my way a bit. And so I sort of have to go and reboot myself. And um, recently, this, it's been about a year now, that I've, I've, I've discovered one that works for me every time. And it's a, it's a quote from Michelle O'Donnell. And I've been using it in, as a sort of lens, if you like, to modify my behavior at birth, to think through how I'm going to approach the labor. One cannot actively help a woman to give birth. The goal is to avoid disturbing her unnecessarily. You know, when I first heard that, probably, I, I think we, it, he says things like, you can use his language so far, but we know, anybody who loves his work, that the depth of that sentence is, as, is fathoms, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely down, 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 and it takes years to really understand what he means by disturb. And so I wanted to sort of tell some stories, a couple of little stories rather than one long one. So um, I had this strange experience um, last Saturday. I had to go out of town, which is rare for me. I normally just work in London. And it was a second time mum had had her baby in London first time and said, oh, please, second baby. And she's gone to Basingstoke. Um, she booked a home birth. She's in the middle of absolute, like in a forest, actually, down a muddy track. So it was quite in the middle of nowhere, and a big old house. They booked her for home birth, and then they started saying that stuff when they say, you know, um, we might not get anybody there, that kind of thing. Anyway, on the night, which was last week, they, they, we phoned them up, plenty of time to spare, and they said they wouldn't send anybody. Tried the usual thing, which some of you will know, you know, where you say, well, it's your duty of care. Um, and they were quite point blank, and they just said... They didn't even say call an ambulance, actually. It was a bit odd. They were just like, over to you. And um, so I, I mean, I, as an experienced doula, obviously lots of babies have fallen into my lap without anybody there. That does happen, usually with second-time mums. It's, it sometimes happens. But, but that's always with a view to midwives arriving any second and ambulances arriving any second. You know, I, it's not something that happens in a really, oh, right, that's it. Me in a forest with a woman on my own. There's no plan, you know, and she's in the pool. And, and so I just reset my button. I literally just went, I did that quote. I just do that in my head. If I'm going to make this as safe as I possibly can, and I have to make this as safe as I possibly can, 
I'm going to live it to the max. I've messed it up many times in births I've attended where I just do too much. I just rescue too much. I rub backs too much. Mm. And I just thought, it's so hard for me because I'm a bit of a dewy person. So I just sort of laid down by her pool and I just listened to the register change of her voice. And, you know, we all know, <clears throat> lots of you who work in birth know the feeling, know the sounds, know the behaviour, we all know. I hadn't even gone to the, that, that depth myself, even though I've been a, 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 I've obviously had babies without anyone there, it still wasn't at this depth where there was, I can't even just, such an undistracted, it was totally dark for starters, because usually, of course, somebody arrives and some light goes on in some form, something. But I'm not going to do that now because it's only me. And the dad was in the other room. So I just left it pitch black. Also, she, we'd filled a whole birth pool. And I always remember famously Michelle O'Don saying, when a midwife said to him, what are the contraindications for not using a birth pool? And he said, when the birth's going well. And I, I thought, right, so I'm not going to just tell her, your birth pool's ready, because that's a disturbance. She wasn't asking for it. And I don't care how many hours it's taken to fill, which she had. Um, wait, you know, just that's a disturbance. I just kept checking in disturbance, 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 and uh, she was just lying on the sofa, and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing to watch the purity of the thread of her conversation with her baby develop. So first of all, she'd when I arrived, she was chatting, moving around, beating a flapjack. So she's, she's obviously in the daytime. She blocked first of all the static that is the public environment. That's what women do first in those early stages. Then they start to leave behind the family life, but there's a little bit of potter, isn't it? We know that. And then in comes the, what, the, the, the consciousness. Um, it looks to us as caregivers like they're retreating. I don't think women are retreating. I think they're expanding. I think some of you would agree. They're actually joining the universe, and we're the ones that are being pushed to the edges of their consciousness. So it looks like they're doing this. And if you're in a very, very undisturbed environment, you really see that. You feel you're in the, absolutely on the edge, and they are the hugest thing. In, they are it. They are the world. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and so this was a real experience to watch this and just to listen to the, to the, single, the singular sort of, you know, I mean, most births, of course, increase in noise and increase in a sort of vigor and, um, you know, that the acceleration that we all know. But um, it was so clean, the line. And I, the reason I'm fascinated particularly in, in, in disturbance and what it can do to a birth, if you just stick to labor, actually, women are mammals, the mammary gland thing, they respond in a very programmatic way, really programmatically, really bang, 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 on the money, literally. And, then, and, when, and having done you know, that birth last week, that's exactly... She went, mm, 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 you know, you can hear it. We've, but it was so clean, the line. And I did all this feeling proud of myself. But I, I, I then did lose it. And I, I, I minorly messed up because, in a way, it's like the system, isn't it? The fear comes in, right? And what happened was she did say, I'm getting in the pool. She gets in the pool. Um, and I thought, OK, fine. I'm not going to worry about that. And I've seen it a million times. I know what it's supposed to look like. And she started to make all the right noises. There's no, I'm, my, my rule of thumb is change. If I'm hearing change, I'm just gonna close my eyes and not look. Um, and I deliberately didn't look at all because I, to me, disturbance would even be looking. And I know a midwife can't do that because they have to look, but I still think it could be done much more unobtrusively because the looking creates the expectation, the expectation changes the energy in the room. And don't even go there with, do you want to feel it? We can see the hair. That's all about the caregiver's take on the emergence, not what the woman's feeling from the inside. And we always do birth from the outside, giving her the perception of looking at her own body, which is to completely mess up the dynamic. And then I heard the, you know, the, uh, that thing. I thought, I've just got to look. So I looked, and there's a head out. And that was fine. But then I see the little eyes opening and blinking, and then I see the mouth going, you know, underneath the water. And it was really clear, perfect, and I'm still okay. And then just something gripped my heart, and I just, I just 
just thought, what if, what if, you know, what if that baby's going, <gasps> you know, what, I just momentarily lost that, that thing. And I, knew, and, I, and I taught myself, I thought, no, because even a baby, even a newborn would have a furrowed brow. They would look gaspy. And it was utterly relaxed, you know, floppy. But here's the beautiful bit of undisturbed, non, not disturbing. Sad to say, I did disturb her. It was sort of out down to the shoulders and, um, and wasn't making that turn. And that was my fear, of course. It wasn't turning. And so I said... Eleanor, do you want to stand up? And she went, no. To me, talk about reset button, bang. It's like, I didn't have a single millisecond of worry from that moment on because that truth of her, I just totally fully believe that any woman would know what, what was going on for her. And I just went, oh yeah, no, of course. And I was so embarrassed that I even said stand up. You know, because she was like, what? Why would I stand up? It didn't matter to her that four minutes had passed. <gasps> no, I was like, and this baby's just wafting like this. Like this. And, I, and, I, and I know that's completely normal. I've seen it a million times. I've had hundreds of births, obviously, and I've seen it. But to be alone with it, the fear got in there. And then she just, one large push, and out it came, and it was perfect. But what I loved was the way when you, not just the, the clean line of the birth, but the the purity of the conversation between little girl and her, when undisturbed, is um, affords so much safety for the medical world. It affords so much safety for the mother. Affords so it's such a massive, massive resource for all of us if people would just stick to the rules. That anyway, that's that's kind of. Um, I mean, I've got other examples of it, but I was wondering if anybody else wanted to kind of contribute about their experience of what amounts to disturbance in birth? Um, I have a story that's quite similar. I had both my children at home, but the second time, when the midwife turned up, I said to her, oh, are you going to check me? And she went, oh, no. Uh, she went, I can do if you want, but it's not standard procedure because I didn't use NHS midwives. I used, um, a, they were called one-to-one. -one. It's uh, independent midwives, but they're commissioned by the NHS, so I didn't need to pay. And nobody had ever told me that I could say no to vaginal examinations. Now, th this midwife said to me, I can do it. But the thing is, it's only a snapshot in time. It doesn't predict the future. It doesn't tell me how dilated you're going to be in five, you know, in 10 minutes. Oh, what you, a wonderful midwife. Uh, uh, yeah, you could, you, she said you can go from four centimeters to 10 centimeters in 10 minutes, yeah? Oh. And she said, but I can check you if you want. And I said, well, I'm all up for new experiences. So seeing as I had checks last time, I'll try no checks this time. <laughs> and, and it was amazing because actually I was just allowed to get on with it. Mm. I didn't have to keep getting out the pool to be checked. I could get in the pool when it was the right temperature, you know, the temperature that was comfortable for me. I didn't have to wait two hours as I, as I did with my first birth. Um, so I didn't know it was going to be undisturbed because I didn't, no one told me mm. until that midwife turned up that it could be like that. Yeah. I've heard midwives say, well, how are you going to know if you're in labour if I don't check you? Which is an indication of what I'm meaning by this, if you allow the conversation between mother and baby to develop in its own keen elemental way. Um, are you kidding me? I mean, women... Uh, they absolutely know when they're in labour, not least because there's a large, heavy thing in their backside. And if you, if you connect them to that, that ever-growing weight that's then going down their bum, what I'm saying is, is that when you get women in, working from the inside out, that, that, that conversation is so exquisitely calibrated to those, the, the inside of her body and the outside of their body. Does that make sense? Like a, you know, a jigsaw, literally, isn't it? Like, click. You know, and what can we add, really? You know, it's what Michelle O'Donnell was meaning by that sentence. But in what, just in response to what Katie said, if, that, if we think that can disturb, to just say one um, last example, I, I was first woken up to this years ago with a birth who, um, I was with her alone all day, and uh, quite instinctively, because I don't know why, because she was confident, and I, I don't know why, I was very calm, quiet, I didn't do anything, we just laid down all day. And um, 
she was very, very advanced when the midwife came. And she got in her birth pool, and the midwife, I can do it with this. She went, what's that? What's that? That was a massive disturbance. She heard the midwife's biro, and she thought that what she literally, eyes opened, body tensed. She shot out of her own rhythm, her own pulse, that whole sort of, what is that chug that is deep labor? And said, what's wrong? So if that can do that, can you imagine what getting legs akimbo on your back and having somebody foraging, you know, you know, yeah, I mean, God, I mean, how, what are the chances of that not having an effect on the trajectory of the labor? And I'm all for making labor quick and efficient because it's hard work and I just think let's make it you know and I know it's a very pleasurable you know experience but it's still about getting get wanting it to be done in a positive straight line as easy as you can and that's easiest done by not getting in the way you know so anyway hi I found your initial storytelling very powerful Mm -hmm. um, I'm from the NCT um, I'm with Savannah here we, we've just finished a module called Undisturbed Birth oh. um, and I can remember starting off the course and being a, what is this Undisturbed Birth this is not going to happen this is, this is free birthing nobody does this why are we looking at this why are we focusing all this attention on this thing and it took me a long time but I really got it now yeah. And I really get it across to the parents I'm teaching. The whole thing about the hormones and about and then also giving them the skill to deal with being in situations where there are challenges and choices and it is disturbed, how to dial back and what they can do to dial back. That's very important actually because if you do have to this is easy to speak for a home birth, but yeah. for a hospital birth, for example, so I have lots of tricks and devices. So one of my big um can you share those? Shawls and... Well, so, <laughs> okay, privacy. So, it, so literally, uh, yeah. silicone earplugs. I mean, I literally kit them up. Yeah. Because I know that's really just going into your tent. I am kind of forcing them into their own private retreat. But it does mean that they can be inside their own self forever. Yeah. And um, especially for transferring into hospital. And it just means that you... And usually, as we all know, once you're in your, with your lovely midwife and your one room in hospital, you are in your cave. And it yes. is very possible to have a a wonderful undisturbed birth. It's all that corridor bit and the other, yes. the other triage and the Uber driver and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all those things. So it just that I think that, you know, I think it's amazing how little practical information is told to women of what yeah. that's going to feel like. That misunderstanding on the part of the system to recognise what can disturb. I mean, just the public atmosphere, the smell, the... Of, 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 a, of a hospital atrium is incredibly disturbing and much, much less so if you've got your hypnobirthing thing in your ears and your shawl over your head. Thank you very much, Natalie. That was fascinating. We're going to get Katie to do one more poem. Okay, so the, as I mentioned before, the birth of my second child featured on a documentary that was on BBC One. It was called Childbirth All or Nothing. And it wasn't the kind of birth that you normally see on TV. People said I looked relaxed and focused and they asked me how I prepared. And this is what I said. It wasn't because I'd read the books. Childbirth without fear, birthing from within, or anything by Ina May Gaskin. And it wasn't because I'd searched home birth chat forums or Facebook groups to answer the questions that I'd been asking. And it wasn't because I had a birth pool or had a doula and listened to what she had to say, practiced self-hypnosis or drank raspberry leaf tea three times a day. It wasn't because of any of these things, though I did all of them and more. It's simply because I'm a woman and this is what my body was designed for. We've seen what childbirth looks like on TV, right? Women lying on their backs on a strange and unfamiliar bed, fear and screaming, stainless steel, the panic and the dread. But what if the horror and the trauma can sometimes be a self-fulfilling prophecy? What if the received wisdom that birth is dangerous and unpleasant is simply a cultural attitude that we can change when we just listen 
Listen to our bodies and the knowledge they possess. Listen to our rhythms when we need things to progress. We are part of a process as old as life itself ingrained in our DNA, way older than waiting times and targets and an overstretched NHS. And yet birth happens best when it's undisturbed, when it's dark and it's quiet and it's unobserved. Birth requires 100% concentration and focus. And we can't do that when the locus of control is outside of ourselves. We need to feel safe and loved. We need to feel trust. And yet it seems so unjust that we're not being allowed to birth unimpeded at our own pace in a quiet and dark and familiar space. So if you're planning to give birth, please know this one thing, that fear causes tension and that causes pain. When we can relax, we can manage the strain. You can do your own research and find out how to prepare to free the wisdom within us. That's a truth we must share. Thanks, Katie. That was perfect. Thank you. So I'm going to wrap up a bit now. Is there anything else you want to say, Mark? Okay, so I've got a few people I want to say thank you to. Feels a bit like an Oscar speech. <laughs> so I want to say thanks from, from me and Mark to all of you for coming. Thank you. You can give yourself a little cheer if you want. I want to say thank you to Pinter and Martin for, for hosting this and for supporting Sprogcast and all the stuff that you do. Thank you. And the books. Um, oh, and I want to say thank you to our absent friends, Rebecca, obviously, who's had to leave, and also um, Natalie Corden, who couldn't be here tonight, who's our um, newly qualified midwife, because she's on labour ward. So, no sign of Natalie, but we miss her. Um, I want to say thank you to Amy, Natalie, and Katie, especially for the one you wrote on the spot. That's our poem. <laughs> and, I <w> and I want to say thank you to Pete for the photographs. Um, the sound assistance and for being a really great birth partner that's all you've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin for all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.